Now would you open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 26 as we continue to go through Matthew. I've often thought, how on earth do you preach through the passion at any time of year? You know, um, it's too long to preach through in Easter during Lent. And uh, yet other times of the year it seems inappropriate. So here we are um, coming through Good Friday to uh, heading up to Easter and its Advent. Um, Well, this is how we do it. We just keep plotting. And this morning we are at Matthew 26, beginning with verse 31. Let me remind you, those of you who maybe are relatives of family here, just dropping in for a Sunday, that um, immediately prior to this, Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, and there he instituted the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. There he also said, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas, being the one who was to betray him, has gone off to alert the Jewish religious leaders who paid him to betray the Lord. And in a little while, he's going to bring them to the place he knows the Lord is headed, the Mount of Olives, Gethsemane. This was a place that Jesus frequented. With his disciples, probably it was a a sort of camping spot, a bivouac spot, where they would often spend great deals of time. And apparently, it was a place that during uh, the religious festivals, Jews would go and sleep there at night. And uh, so Judas knows where they're going. Jesus doesn't try to obstruct Judas in betraying him by going and choosing a different place, but Jesus is headed the very place Judas knows he'll be headed. And uh, there Jesus will be betrayed by Judas with a kiss. And the large crowd that comes with Judas, armed and dangerous, with great show of force, will arrest Jesus like a common thief. Now, when the Last Supper is at an end, Jesus is no longer with the twelve, but he's with the eleven. Judas has departed Then they sang a hymn, and then they were off. And it's at this point that we read this exchange between Jesus and the eleven. Matthew 26, 31 to 35. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. But Peter answered and said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing, too. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. First, the master states the sad truth. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. What is the meaning of this statement, fall away? Well, it's translated a number of ways in various versions of Scripture. The King James says you will all be offended. And this is yet one more reason why we should not use the King James Version. 
nobody understands the sense of the word offend anymore. No one. Um, if they'll be offended by Jesus, what this means, I suppose in one way you could say that it is a proper translation because it's very offensive to them that Jesus doesn't show himself to be the glorious military and political leader that, that, that he had thought they had thought he was going to be. And so I guess that could be an offense. But um, it's misleading according to the way we use the word offense. Jesus is not saying that they're going to be insulted by him. The New King James does better. It says, all of you will be made to stumble because of me. So they change uh, offense to stumbling. And that's about right. The image is of a bird or small animal getting caught in a snare. To give us a feeling for how this word is used in Matthew's gospel, listen to these other occurrences of the same word. Matthew 11:6 says, And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Matthew 15:12. Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? So offense and then offended and then probably the place where it's most uh, compactly used in a concentrated way in one text, Matthew 18, 6 to 9. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble... Pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. And so the Greek translated stumbling blocks and stumble has the same origin as our word translated in our text, fall away. You will all fall away because of me. Then Matthew 24:10, Jesus says, at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Now, the image behind this word is the image of taking the bait, setting off the trap, and being brought down by it. So an animal, a small bird, a small animal, you know, going into a trap, taking the bait, and at that minute, you know, like a mouse trap, it springs and it catches them. This is what's behind the Greek of this word. And Jesus says all of them, this is what will happen to them. Not one of them is going to escape. Of course, it includes Judas, but Judas is already gone. So he's not talking to Judas anymore. Only the 11 are left. And it's these men, Jesus warns tenderly of their coming entrapment and of their coming failure. They will fall away, all of them. Now, why would Jesus tell them this? The night is going to be hard enough. Do they really need to know beforehand of their own personal failures adding to their Lord's suffering and to his utter alienation from those men that he held most close to his heart. Why would Jesus tell them this? And yet, our Lord doesn't stop with the fact, but he goes on to show that this too is according to Scripture. In other words, it has been prophesied and must be fulfilled. Verse 31, Jesus then said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written... 
I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. So here Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, chapter 13, 7, where we read, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man my associate, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. <clears throat> and so Jesus is quoting this prophecy, and he's prefacing the quote with, For it is written... And it's clear that he is telling his disciple that their failure is according to God's plan. It's no accident. But God's decree that his son suffer and die. The offense must come to his son. But it's also no accident that the disciples will fail, abandoning their Lord during his last hours of life. Jesus Christ, the shepherd, will be struck, and as he struck, the sheep, the flock, will be scattered. The disciples are the sheep of his flock, and they're going to be driven away from him. It's going to be too much for them when Jesus is arrested. It's going to be too much for them when he is tried, when he is beaten, when he is mocked, when he is scorned, when he's whipped. And certainly it's going to be too much for them when he's lifted up on a cross at the corner of second in the bypass, naked and crucified. Why will it be too much for them? Well, despite how often and how plainly Jesus had warned them of his coming suffering and death, they simply couldn't comprehend what he was saying or its significance. And so when all of it came to pass, each of them fell into the trap, sprung it, and faithlessly turned away from their Lord and Master. Now, it was according to God's plan. Jesus says very clearly here that this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy in Zechariah. But it also is the trap that is sprung by Satan. It was the work of Satan. In fact, if we look at the parallel account in Luke's Gospel, we read this specific warning given to Peter in Luke 22, 31 and 32. Jesus is very personal in dealing with Peter about this matter. And he says, Simon, Simon, the other name for Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Think of it falling through the hands. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so we see Jesus saying that Satan has demanded permission to sift Peter like wheat, but that Jesus, he, Jesus, has prayed for Peter that his faith may not fail. Now, what is it to have your faith fail if it isn't to deny the Lord? Jesus just got done saying that all of them are going to deny him. But he prays that Peter's faith may not fail. Did Peter's faith fail? It failed. And yet Jesus immediately says, And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And so we see that there is a failure and there is a failure, isn't there? 
The Holy Spirit warns us in Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we must recognize that uh, the things that we think are simply uh, little precious somethings to us that we hold in abeyance until the moment that we want to give in to them. Temptation. You know, temptation is very precious to us. We need to realize that these little temptations that we are master and commander of, that we absolutely have under control, are in fact not under our control at all. But they are sent to us by Satan. He is sifting us. And it's precisely when we think that we most have them under control that we have the greatest danger. In 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, we're again warned of Satan where this command is given us, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour but resist him firm in your faith. And so it's by God's decree. God himself said that he would strike the shepherd and the sheep would scatter. This is a fulfillment of that, but it is Satan who is demanded permission to sift them like wheat. Verse 32, Jesus goes on and says, But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So the good shepherd will be struck and struck so severely that he will die in shame and humiliation. One disciple will betray him. The other eleven abandon him. They will scatter the winds. And yet Jesus reminds them that his heavenly father will not abandon him to the grave, but will raise him up. Did you note how Jesus put it? He said, but after I have been raised. It wasn't after I rise. Jesus is not saying that he's going to lift himself up out of death. That he's going to roll away the stone of the tomb. That he's master and commander of his own fate. But Jesus is very clearly saying that it is his father who will raise him from the dead. He says, after I have been raised, then he says, I will go before you to Galilee. So here are the eleven. They're beaten and they're sorrowful and they're shamed. And Jesus brings them back and restores them to himself, saying to them that following their failure, he will go before them into Galilee where he'll meet them back at home, as it were. In other words, their failure will not cause them to be cut off from the Lord permanently, but they will be restored to him, to his mercy and love. And it's going to happen in Galilee. 
And so later when we see Mary Magdalene and the other Mary met by the angel of God at Jesus' grave, Jesus has been raised from the dead by his father. Jesus, the angel specifically told these two dear women, Matthew 28, 5, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, what? He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And we read that having said this to the two women, the two Marys, verse 8, they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. Then what do we read? Well, Immediately, the next thing is they run into Jesus. Jesus meets them and he greets them. Verses 9 and 10. And they came up and took hold of Jesus' feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. What? Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. And so here in our text, we read that Jesus told them the same thing after the Last Supper. When he was warning them of their coming falling away, verse 32, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Think about that. Uh, Jesus says, you're all going to deny me. But then he says that I will be raised and I'll meet you. I'll go before you into Galilee. And you uh, you have the picture of moving from the west side of Bloomington to, or from the east side of Bloomington to the west side of Bloomington. Or you have the picture of moving from the west side of Bloomington to Greene County. When Jesus says he'll meet them in Galilee, what he's saying is that, he's going, that they're going to have relief from the oppressive uh, presence of all of the money, all the wealth, all the power, and all the influence of the muckety-mucks, the grand poobahs, the people of account, not the no accounts. He's going to go out to Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, and he's going to go before them and meet them there. Well, think of what a relief this would be on a couple of levels to the disciples. Number one, it's a relief to them to know that they're going to be able to get the hell out of Jerusalem. Think about it. What an awful place. What a place of suffering and humiliation and abandonment and desertion. And then Jesus is lifted up on the cross and he dies there in Jerusalem. And it is the leaders of the city and the nation who kill him. It is the capital. And he says he'll go before them and he'll meet them out in Galilee. I'll I'll go to the west side. I'll go to Greene County. I'll go to Tijuana. I'll go to Mexico. In other words, we have to feel the relief to these honest working men of hearing where he's going to go before them and meet them. He's a shepherd and he's going to take them to green pastures. He's going to take them back to the place of their first intimacy and love. He's going to take them out from the oppressive presence of those who led the land in the city back to the rural haunts, back to the place where sheep, goats, shepherds, and the poor and the Gentiles were. 
So that would be a comforting thing to, 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 to the disciples. But more importantly, it's not the place, but the fact that he says that he is going to meet them. Well, you think about denying the Lord, and if he says you're all going to deny him, what would you expect? Well, you would expect that he would give you what you deserve. Because after all, Scripture says that those that deny the Lord, the Lord will deny. If we're ashamed of God, if we're ashamed of Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us that God himself will be ashamed of us. Right? And yet what he says here is you're all going to fail, but I will continue to be intimate with you, to love you, and to lead you. I will continue to be your shepherd. So now, why is Jesus doing this? Why exactly is it that Jesus is telling them that they're all going to deny him? What's the point? Well, the point is for them to get a sober reflection of who they are, who they really are. But the point also is for them to learn who God is. That God is not someone we all think of God as being, <coughs> you know, like the little bubblegum machine, where generally, generally, if you put a coin in it and you turn the thing of a bugger, there will be bubblegum that comes out. All right? Generally. They're mechanical. They're not electric, so you won't have to kick them. You won't have to do what you have to do to pop machines or canning machines. Those little bubblegum machines, you turn it and it comes out. We think of God this way, that if we're good this week and then come, we'll, we'll have uplifting worship. Our conscience will be clear, but if we're bad this week, then God won't meet us in this place. And then you realize that it is precisely at your point of greatest need when you're most conscious of your sin that God most clearly meets you. Because all those other times you're not conscious of your sin, Jesus says, I didn't come for the righteous. And so all those times when you have an uplifting worship service because you've been righteous, you're completely deluded. And that's not D-I-L-U-T-E-D, but D-E-L-U-D-E-D, which means completely self-deceived, completely ignorant, completely wrong. Because what the Bible shows us is that it's those who denied the Lord and those who abandoned him and who were faithless that Jesus restored to his presence, went before and met in Galilee. After I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, about this point, good old Peter ain't convinced. And Peter thinks to himself, maybe others, but certainly not me. He answers and says to Jesus, verse 33, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And the leader is always, Peter protests what the Lord has said. Certainly not him. He will never fall away. He'd never abandon his beloved Lord and show himself faithless. Now, what do we see here? Well, we see here the modern young man. Um, very, very convinced of his own ability to do anything that he says. 
I remember somebody wrote about a former president who will remain nameless, but he was former. And he was in my lifetime. I'll give you a clue. That this man had never... That this man... See what's happening? It's going to fall over soon. Um, That this was a man who had never had his mother disagree with anything he said. That he thought that simply by virtue of saying things, it made them true. And I think that's a perfect description of young men today. I notice uh, certain young men who remain nameless um, will tell you, you know, how they're going to do in in a game, what their grades are going to be, who they're going to marry. You know, just, I'm, you know, like Bill Cosby, I'm going to the zoo, I'm going to Japan, I'm going to China, going everywhere. Yep, 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 yep. This is like how young men think today. I will announce it, and then my eminence will do it. And that's about with Peter. And, you know, you can kind of enter into it with Peter because it's quite insulting for Jesus to tell you that you are going to betray him, right? It's an insult to your own personal honor. What do you take me for, a fair-weather friend? I'm made for the tough times. And that's, again, like young men today. Well, I, you know, when the tough get going, the going get tough or something like that. And so here Peter is, and he's, 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 he's in character, isn't he? This is the Peter we know. Um, but what's true about Peter? Well, what's true about Peter is what's true usually about people with big mouths like me and Peter. You remember what you were taught by your dad about the bully in junior high school? The guy that opens his mouth and throws his weight around, all you have to do is just once punch him. And what happens to the boy? The boy all of a sudden is revealed as the coward he always was. And his mouth is covering his cowardice. And so Peter, his eminence, I! You know, it's kind of disgusting also to look at Peter and to see how superior he considers himself to others. Even though everyone else I will never fall away. I am, I am so devoted to you, Jesus, why no one has my faith. No one. I am the faithful one. So what are Peter's errors? Well, number one, he looks down on everybody else and considers himself better than them, right? Number two, he directly contradicts Jesus. I mean, that's something generally you don't want to do. <laughs> you know. But number three, the most disgusting part of myself, as I see me and Peter, is what? Well, he's completely lacking in self-awareness. And isn't that so characteristic of people today? Completely lacking in any self-critical capacity. Completely. You know, that we could see our hearts as they are, see our thought processes as they are, see our um, affections for what they really are. 
see our motivations for what they really are. You know, we live in a day when, think about it, actors are our heroes. <laughs> no wonder we're all so self-deluded. The people we look up to are the people who have never had an honest thought in their life. Or, in the case of Jack Nicholson, just one in his real life and in the movies. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. <laughs> you know, just an obnoxious dude. You know, he's never out of character. <laughs> I mean, think about it. We love people who make a living by acting as if there's someone else. And so if this is, this is who our heroes are, then why would we all of a sudden have perception? And the ability to discriminate between the true and the false when it comes to our own hearts. God has given us over to idolatry as a nation. Completely to idolatry. And the image is real to us and the real is a mirage. You know? The only way we know that we're giving birth to a baby is we saw it in a movie once and this looks like what that looked like. Now, that's probably the one time where it's not true, but only because the pain is so intense that you maybe aren't stopping to think about how you, how you would be looking in a movie if you were doing this. And so we look at Peter and we see that he is completely lacking in any self-critical capacity. Peter is not aware at all of his own limitations. He's not aware of his own depravity. Is he? Remember that Calvin says at the beginning of the Institutes that true religion is to know what? To know yourself and to know God. And today, we think we know God and we do everything we can to not know ourselves. But it's impossible. In fact, our evangelism today is to hide people from themselves and supposedly to show them God. But can you know God without knowing yourself? Peter answered, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never, ever fall away. Never. He could believe evil about others that he could not imagine concerning himself. Galatians 6.1 has this warning, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So Peter protests, not him, but Jesus responds how? Well, verse 34, what does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, truly I say to you. In other words, listen up. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. Read my lips, Peter. Truly, I say to you, that this very night, before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. In this, there are two rebukes. One rebuke is that it's going to happen right now. You know? In other words... Within a few hours of the time that you said you would never do it, you're going to do it. This very night, and the second rebuke is what? You're going to do it once, 
And then you're going to do it twice. And then you're going to do it three times. In other words, you're going to do it again and again and again. Well, by this time, Peter realized he'd met his match. And so he just shut his mouth and he began to meditate on these things. Right? Verse 35, Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you! And then Matthew adds the little detail. All the disciples said the same thing too. All of them. Isn't it interesting that when they're in the upper room and they have um, Jesus saying to them in the upper room that one of them is going to betray him, how do they all respond? Do you remember that? They all respond by saying, is it I, Lord? And now when Jesus says, you will all deny me, they all swear up one side and down the other, not them. Why would that be? Why, when it comes to betrayal, would they all have hearts that were immediately worried and concerned and asking Jesus, is it I, Lord? And then when it comes to denying him, they're all saying, it's not me, Lord. Why? What do you think? I think it's interesting. A couple of thoughts. Number one, it may be that when it came to the upper room, Aaron Law said this uh, to me after the first service, that they were very, very vulnerable. They were reclining at the table. It was the intimacy of a meal. There was no um, hostility, no aggression, no, it was a very private place. And so when Jesus in that context said, one of you is going to betray me, they were caught completely off guard. And being caught off guard, their immediate response was vulnerable. And they say, is it me? It's not I, Lord, is it? But then when they're leaving and they're going out in public and they're not at the intimacy of the table, they're more sort of manly men. Now they're gir- they've girded their loins. They're going out, you know, they're going to do what needs to be done. And in that context, you know, remember Peter and his sword, right? In that context, they're ready to do what needs to be done. And he says to them that you're going to deny me. And they're like, no, I'm not going to do that. Right? Another thing might be that... Uh, on the one hand, it's one of you, and on the other hand, it's all of you. And so when it's one of you, it again, you're more vulnerable to that. Not me, not me, you know. But when it's all of you, we will not, you know. I will not, you will not, he will not, I will not. Anyhow, it's very interesting that the first time around, they were all asking, is it I? This time, they're all saying, it's not me. I'm not going to deny you. All the disciples said the same thing. There's only one traitor among the twelve 
but the other 11 are all deserters. Do we know ourselves? Do we know our temptations? Do we know our weaknesses and our sins? Matthew Henry writes, It's easy to talk boldly and carelessly of death at a distance. Those often fall soonest and foulest that are most confident of themselves. Those are least safe that are most secure. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I haven't come for the righteous, but for sinners. Those are least safe that are most secure. Satan is most active to seduce such. They are most off their guard, and God leaves them to themselves to humble them. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12 says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Now, what is there for us to learn? Well, first, we need to learn again how completely offensive the cross of Jesus Christ is. First, it is offensive as Jesus himself bears it for the sins of the world. The cross of Jesus Christ is offensive. In 1 Corinthians 1, 20-26, we read, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... The world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Why did they fall away? They fell away because the cross of Jesus Christ was repulsive to the disciples. It was repulsive to them. And they fell away. They deserted the Lord in his hour of need. And Peter, Peter denied the Lord three times. Now, how do we apply this to our lives today? Well, in order to apply this to our lives today, we have to recognize that uh, we live in a time when everybody um, thinks the best about himself and The reason we think the best about ourselves is that we've had mothers that have lied to us and fathers never brought the truth to bear. Our mothers think that even our pimples are beautiful. Our mothers think that everything we do is good, unless you have my mother, and then it was kind of role reversal in our family. My dad adored us and my mother saw the truth. I don't know where I'd be without my mom, my godly, wonderful, tough-as-nails mother. And she gave quite a bit of truth to our children, her grandchildren also, right, love? Yeah. I remember her saying when Heather was very young, Heather needs to be taught. How did she put it? Heather needs to be taught. 
that Heather needs to be taught to admit it when she's wrong. That's what it was. And we do have mothers or fathers. We have parents who pander to us, and then they demand that the school teachers pander to us too. I was amazed recently to hear somebody that went to one of the academically respectable schools telling me that the average grade was like a B or a B plus. <laughs> Have to work a little harder to get an A. It's like so disgusting. How are people going to know the nature of God when they show up at class and get a B? You say, oh, well, those things aren't connected. And I say, well, yeah, they are. Because it's all part of a scheme to lie to ourselves. Our parents lie to us. They tell us that we can be all we want to be. All we have to do is apply ourselves. You know, the Horatio Algers thing. And then we hear it at commencement exercises. Everyone we go to, it's the same message that, you know, the world is your doorstep. You know, you just have to believe in yourself. And so everybody believes in themselves and everybody's a scumbag. (laughs) And they think that that's... I'm the best scumbag the world ever saw. And so how do we do evangelism? Well, we do evangelism in such a way that it appeals to people like that. Do you understand this? And so how do you evangelize vain, self-centered, completely unself-critical, proud uh, wimps? Well, the way you evangelize us is... That you pander to us. And how do you pander to us? Well, you pander to us by never dealing with sin. Sin is nowhere. You don't enter the cross through God's wrath being revealed against sin. But you enter the cross through God's wonderful plan for your life. God loves you and has a wonderful man for your plan. God loves you and has a wonderful wife for your life. Now, why do I say it like that? Because I want you to see that really that almost works as well as God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Because after all, what do college students want? They want a wonderful wife for their life, a wonderful man for their plan. And so if God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, what that really means is if you... Put your faith in Jesus Christ. He'll give you a good husband, a good wife. A good wife. Now, does that mean it's a lie? Well, the words aren't lies. The words are true. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But they're taking a lot for granted that isn't spoken, right? Namely, God does not have a wonderful plan for the life of the person who turns from his son and refuses to believe. Unless you call eternal torment in hell where the worm doesn't die and the flame never goes out a wonderful plan. But that's all just assumed. Can we assume it today? Can we assume that today? We never could, ever. Never. Can't be assumed. 
What drives Christian to the cross and to heaven in Pilgrim's Progress? Christian, by God's grace, is given a perfect vision of the terrible burden of sin that is bringing him down, and he cannot bear it. It's torment to his soul. The cross of Christ has always been repulsive. Every time I read 1 Corinthians 1, where is the wise man, where is the scribe? We preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. The cross was a stumbling block to Jews. They turned away from it and its shame. The cross was foolishness to Gentiles. They turned away from it as they pursued the latest theory, the latest philosophy, the latest thought. Always when I read that, I think, but today, wonderfully, the cross is wise. Isn't it nice to be alive today? Isn't it nice that now we can have our religion in a time when there's no evil and no danger and no sin and no wickedness and no no rejection of the cross when everybody's a Christian and so nobody's a Christian? As Kierkegaard says, when to be a man and to be a Christian is the same thing. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Doesn't that sound perfectly suited to a place where the average grade is B+. Plus? Perfectly suited to a place where yeah, there's a little too much wind blowing on us, and these walls could be prettier, but boy, it's warm, and we're not getting wet, and we're not worried that the Gestapo is going to break in the doors and arrest us. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But what happens when all the progressive emergent types begin to betray us because we oppose abortion, begin to betray us because we preach against sodomy and pederasty, and pedophilia begin to betray us because we discipline those who are prey against their daughters in their own home, who pray against them, begin to betray us because we preach that all the gods of the nations are idols. The Lord made the heavens and the earth. What happens when all of a sudden God doesn't appear to have a wonderful plan for our lives Unless what you mean by a wonderful plan is that our Lord will be stripped naked, will be whipped, will have a crown of thorns put on his head, will be mocked, and then will be crucified at second and the bypass. That that's the wonderful plan he has for our lives, that he is our Lord. That He is the Lord of the universe. That He is the one that we say every knee will bow before and every tongue confess that He is Lord to the glory of God. All of a sudden, the wonderful plan for our life isn't so wonderful, is it? And it doesn't really sound like a plan. Right? Listen, the cross has always been offensive. Any method of evangelism that removes the offense of the cross is not evangelism at all. It's evangelism to more pandering, to more vanity, to more smugness, 
to more pathetic Americanism, Westernism, to more Northern Hemispherism. That's all it is. The gospel is what? The gospel is the account of God's wrath being unleashed against his only begotten son. And that's not pretty. And it's not a plan that anybody would choose. It's very interesting, two things in this connection. Leaving aside for a second the physicality of the cross, the physicality of it, and moving into the concept of the cross. I remember reading about probably 15 years ago a talking head. In other words, somebody that makes their living off being handsome and not mispronouncing words. This guy was a television talking head, an idol of our nation. And he was asked to give his opinion on Christianity. Why a talking head would be asked his opinion on anything, I don't know. Why would we ask his opinion? And so he said this. He said, you know, my God is not a God who is angry. I don't know why. This is always stuck in my head. It was my first indication that whenever anybody refers to God as my God, you've got trouble coming. You know, I will never say my God unless it's to indicate that I'm clinging to him. It certainly won't be to indicate that he has character that is different from somebody else's God, because then we're in trouble. There is only one God, the God, the God that 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 Paul proclaimed in the Areopagus in Athens. Paul didn't say, well, my God. <laughs> Paul said, he made you and everything. He gives you life and breath. So he said, my God is not a God who is angry. What is the cross? The cross is the account of God's wrath against sin. And a wrath that is so terrible that the only provision that can be made for it that rescues his creation is his only son. God struck the shepherd. God himself struck his son. And that is a scandal. It's a precious scandal, but it's not precious until it's a scandal. Right? My God isn't angry. So the disciples had been told again and again and again by Jesus that he was going to suffer and die and then that he's going to be crucified. And now they're being told, it's right here, it's right now, and you all are going to betray me. And Peter and all the disciples say, no, we won't do it. Right? Why? Well, what we see is that Jesus... is about to undergo something that is so shameful and so terrible for them to behold, for them to look at, that they won't be able to stand it. All their hopes, all their dreams were going to go up in smoke. 
probably if Jesus had announced that he was about to lead a coup d'etat and to dispense with the Jewish religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees and to dispense with the Roman oppressors, and he died in the process of that, my guess is that all of them would have gone to their death next to him. Because to die in the, in the pursuit of a glorious cause, as men understand glory, is no shame. But to die in a cause that is despicable and, 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 and poor and, and, and despised and small and weak and naked and hanging, it is not glorious, is it? Has that cross changed? Again, think. Have we been reborn in a day when the cross is no longer a scandal? Today, do we have glory? Do we have fame? Do we have power? Do we have riches? Do we have wealth? Do we have influence? Today, is it the mighty? And the wise in the world's eyes. Is it the east side of Bloomington? You live on the east side, but there are precious few of us left. Chris. Okay, let's have a show of hands. You have to choose between the east side and the west side, and I'm going to say that it's Walnut and College that divide it. Is that fair? Bob's a Jew, so he's on the east side. Okay, how many of us live on the east side? Okay, how many of us live on the west side? Somebody want to call for a division of the house? You know that Corinthians does tell us that not many of the wise, not many of the rich, not many of the powerful, not many with tenure, not many professionals. Again, how is it that we think that everything has changed from Scripture to today? Everything. The problem with the disciples was that Jesus was reduced to utter abandonment by his father and by his followers, to nakedness, to shame, to scorn. The scandal was that Jesus was a nothing, a complete nothing, a complete zip. And so the cross of Christ was repulsive to the 12 disciples, every one of them. One of them betrayed Jesus and the other 11 deserted him and deserted him in his need, in his hour of need. And Peter, not content to do it only once, denied his Lord three times. The cross of Christ has always been a scandal. It always will be a scandal. It has never, ever, ever had the best-selling authors, the people that live in Hyde Park, the professionals, the professors with tenure, 
the A students, the rich people, it's never, ever, ever had those people around it. In his, in his book called, um, sorry, I forgot they were up there. In his book called uh, In Praise of Folly, uh, the great... Um, great Roman Catholic scholar, Erasmus, ends the book by saying what? He ends the book by saying that it has always been the foolish and simpletons and women who have been closest to the cross of Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, and godly women smile and say, right on, dude. And feminists get angry. It's always been this way. I can take you to writer after writer across church history that says that same thing. Just repeat it again and again and again and again. That the cross of Jesus Christ has those who are poor. And you can define poor any way you want. It's defined differently in different times, but it's always the poor. Because the cross is a scandal. All right, that's the first half. Here's the second half. It's not just the cross of Jesus Christ, but it's also our cross. All right? Jesus said, whoever would follow me must deny himself and take up his cross. So it's not just that the cross of Jesus Christ is a scandal, but it's also that our own cross is a scandal. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Right? And what is the plan? The plan is that you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and lose your life. <laughs> Again, those who know God smile and say, right on, dude. And those who don't know God get angry. And they go off and they find a preacher who will scratch their ears, right? Again, why have we become convinced that this is the one time in history when we don't have to take up our cross to follow Jesus? Why are we convinced that this is the one time in history where there isn't shame attached to being a Christian? where you don't have to be poor, where you don't have to be despised, where you don't have to make an ass of yourself. There has never, ever, ever been a period of time in history, never, when there was not a cross for those who were under the cross. And the cross is not symbolically painful. The cross is really painful. Amos? This means that if you get everything you want about sports, right? Everything you want, you can never, ever be what you wish you could be. Because you're going to have to acknowledge Jesus Christ. Every win of a sportsman. How about those of you that have made it academically? Chris, you've made it, right? I'd say, if you haven't made it now, you'll never make it. Right? Don't you have tenure now? No? Yes? Say, I have tenure. I have tenure. Okay, he has tenure. How tight do you hold it? Yeah, 
Yeah, too tight. Yeah. See, there's a man that knows himself. <laughs> I love Chris. What about your beauty? What about your children? Wonderful children. How tightly do you hold your children? Where is the cross in your life? And do you run from it or do you embrace it? Where is the cross in your life? From that time, Matthew 16, 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Well, that gives us a little better of a picture of why Peter is so zealous against his own betrayal, right? I mean, he's against Jesus dying. He's against the shame and the humiliation of Jesus being crucified. He denies it. Even when Jesus says it, he denies it. Well, then when he's told he'll abandon Jesus when Jesus goes through that, he's not going to admit to that either, right? He's completely vulnerable. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. So any person that tells you that if you learn to be more tactful in the way you relate to your family members around the Thanksgiving table, then the offense of the cross will be gone. And you'll just simply be able to announce to them that Jesus is God's Son and has died for them, and they'll become Christians because you've learned to be so tactful. You know, but when Peter said, no, Lord, this will never happen, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because what was Peter doing? Peter was seeking to seduce him away from his cross away from being a scandal, away from his humiliation, away from taking up his cross. And Jesus saw this was Satan, and he resisted Satan. And so today, when you're told that you're going to deny the Lord, when you see yourself as you really are and realize how weak you are, what do you need to do? You need to resist all those who try to tell you you're actually wonderful. You're God's gift to mankind. Right? Whether they do it in the name of Christ or whether they do it in the name of psychology or whether they do it in the name of your looks or your skin color or your athletic prowess or whatever it is. Resist them. Have a sober view of who you are. Because why? Because the Bible says work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. Why? It's very interesting. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling because... It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. One final uh, note about this. Remember, Jesus told them they were going to fall. Jesus made it clear that he loved them and he accepted them and would go before them in Galilee and they'd be restored to him. Remember, they all did fall and they are the apostles of the church. So, I'll never say it again, and I've never said it before. Are you ready? Write it down. Don't be too hard on yourself. <laughs> because God loves you. And you will fail. But Jesus does not cut you off. As a matter of fact, 
I've often told you that if I write a book about my dad as a father, you know what it's going to be titled? It's going to be titled, He Failed Gloriously. And that's about the best that can be said about any of us. We're glorious failures. We fail in the right direction. In the early centuries, there was a lot of persecution, like what we're about to head into today. I have no question about where we're headed. And there was a group of uh, pastors, priests, who, when put under the, uh, the thumb of the civil authority and told to deny their faith, they denied their faith. And after that, a period of, uh, of uh, a thaw in the persecution came. And at that time, these men that had denied the Lord then uh, began to take up their pastoral positions again. All right? And so they came back into church. They repented of having been unfaithful in a time of danger, in a time of safety. They came back in and they said, we're back. Right? And some of the people said, no, you're not back. Some of the other leaders, the other pastors said, no, you're not back. You can't, you know, waltz on back in here and act as if we're going to accept you when you were unfaithful and some of us stood the heat. And some gave up their lives. And so there was a controversy that developed. And the controversy developed around the sacraments. Because what the righteous people said is, if you administer the sacraments to us, the sacraments aren't valid because you're a sinner. You, you, you are unfaithful to the Lord. And the church declared that the Donatist heresy. And they said, no, the sacraments, for their efficacy, their effectiveness, do not depend upon the righteousness of the one who serves you. Now, that's interesting, and it's true. You're not sitting there thinking, will God meet me in this meal based on how Tim has acted in the past week? No, God, this is his table. I administer it. But my sin is not an obstacle to God meeting you as you eat and drink, right? But much more interesting, this idea that the church declared that it was a heresy. A heresy to cut off those who had fallen and to refuse to see them restored, not simply to sitting in the pews, but to being pastors of the flock. In other words, we need to be very, very quick to embrace those who have fallen. Very, very quick. Very, very quick. And those who have fallen most awfully. Right? Never should people come into the church and find that the church has stopped being for sinners and is now for the righteous. It should be very clear to everybody that this is a place, and I hate this. This makes me disgusted, the way people say this. But, okay, I'll say it. The church should be a place of brokenness, not of chest thumping. Now, let me tell you, when an emergent dude starts talking about his brokenness, and you live in a metrosexual day, all he's doing is thumping his chest. So you have to be careful in realizing that when somebody talks about their angst, that doesn't make them broken. Typically today, it makes them very, very willful and proud. In other words, deception is everywhere. But in the church, true, humble, and meek brokenness 
belongs here. These were the disciples. These were the first Christians. This is still true today. 